0: Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. That's tomisticinstituteorg slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at thomisticinstitute.org.
1: Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill our hearts Enkindle in us the fire of your divine love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of thy faithful people, grant us by the same light that we always may be wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ our Lord, Mary Queen of Peace, St. Joseph, St. Thomas Aquinas, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a great joy for me to be here this morning with all of you as we begin our student leadership conference, or at least uh, the portion of it where we have talks and gatherings together like this. And it's very inspiring, actually, to see all of you here, all ready to uh, seek the true and do the good on your campuses. And to bring the truth of the Catholic faith, according to Saint Thomas Aquinas, to those around you in your context. it's really a great moment that we're in here. This is the largest student leadership conference we've ever had, and I think it represents a moment, for uh, a moment of significance for the Church in the United States and throughout the world, actually. So, how shall we focus our attention this morning in order to um, receive? the grace that god is giving us uh, as we gather here for this conference let's begin with a simple truth a simple statement from saint thomas aquinas the purpose of life is to know god period the purpose of life is to know god that's a statement he makes in the summa contra gentiles and it's easily memorable and easily quotable and it's a marvelous Truth to sit with for a long time and really take to heart. Because in the world around us, there are many messages told about the purpose of life. And as we get gather the message from the world around us, the purpose of life is anything and everything except knowing God. In fact, a lot of people wonder whether it's even possible to know God at all. But for those of us who are convinced it is possible to know God, and that The purpose of life is to know God. There really could be nothing better than to know him, he who is the first and the last and the source of all things and the goal of all things. There could be nothing better than knowing God. Those of us who are gathered here and convinced of that, the question really is, how shall we live? How shall we live our lives if that statement is true? If the purpose of life is to know God, how shall we live? Now, I want to talk for a moment. I want to answer that question throughout this talk and the next talk. And that's how and really all the talks. I think Paige will uh, speak to the same question. But um, we want to ask ourselves, uh, what are the what are the answers that are given on the contemporary scene in the Catholic Church in the United States today? This is very important. I want to talk about this for a few moments. I've had the opportunity to travel the United States to preach and to teach on many, many, many campuses, both uh, through the Thomistic Institute and through uh, other venues of various kinds. I've traveled extensively and met with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of students and young adults and I think I have at least a little bit of a sense of where people are at or where things are at in the church in the United States today, especially among young people. And what I have come to realize through my experience and reflecting upon everything I've seen, it seems like there is a sharp dichotomy uh, that sort of dominates the church in the United States. At this time, especially among young people, it's a false dichotomy, to be to be sure, right up front. But there's a certain false dichotomy that kind of dominates um, a lot of discussions and a lot of life in the church today. And I call it the dichotomy between relationality and rationality. Relationality versus rationality. Now I see some of you shaking your heads already. Whenever I bring this up, and talk about this with people They know exactly what I'm talking about, including students here at the House of Studies, Um, there's one way of sort of conceiving of the Christian life or the Christian walk in terms that are relational, but we could say exclusively relational. So to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, is principally to be involved in a relationship, and that relationship is understood in terms of an affective responsiveness to the Lord Jesus and a quest for an experience of him, an experiential knowledge of him and a giving of one's heart to him and a, and going into uh, a life of increasingly deeper devotion to him, okay? So that's the, we can say, the relational view of things. So the Christian walk on this view is exclusively a matter of relationship. Of affectivity, of experience, and of uh, you could say the response of devotion, devotion of the heart to the Lord Jesus. Okay, that's note the word exclusively. Okay, uh, and coming out of this view or this understanding or this side of things, uh, you'll often hear statements to the effect that um, it's about a relationship; it's not about reason. I've heard those state that statement made. It's about, how many of you have heard something like that? It's about relationship, not about reason. Yeah, so a number of people are raising their hands. Um, you're, what you're looking for is not in books. It's in the heart or something like that. Um, how many people have heard statements like that? How many people have been discouraged from asking questions about the mysteries of the faith, like the Trinity, the Incarnation, or the Resurrection? Have people... Ex- encounter discouragement either from teachers or peers or pastoral ministers, of various kinds or pastoral leaders. Yeah, it's very common. In fact, I mean, I don't have a list of quotes in front of me. I don't think I need them just because it's so common, but you'll hear these kinds of statements from churchmen in high places. You'll hear it from um, people involved in all kinds of pastoral, uh, evangelical outreach, pastoral ministry, these kinds of things. There's a real discouragement, if not downright <clears throat> opposition to rational reflection, abstract thought, raising hard questions, seeking out answers, that kind of stuff uh, on, on this first view, okay, the relational view of things, that kind of stuff um, is frowned upon. And it's said that either it won't get you where you want to go, it won't sanctify you, it won't lead you into union with God it won't set your soul on fire with love, or maybe even more extreme, the statement is made that kind of activity, rational reflection, conceptual analysis, the exploration of deep issues and deep questions, reasoning deeply upon things, following through, gathering principles, drawing distinctions, following through on things, thinking things through, that's not only will it not get you where you want to go, it will actually get in the way. It's a, basically an obstacle. It's an obstacle to sanctity, to union, to being with God. Okay? So uh, that's the, that kind of follows from or flows out of this first uh, view of things, which is that the spiritual life or the Christian life, the Christian walk, consists exclusively— it, as in terms of a relationship, or it is It is exclusively a relationship, and is to be lived in terms of an affective, experiential response of devotion to God and to Jesus. Okay, now that's one side of the dichotomy, the false dichotomy that's out there. There's another side of the false dichotomy that's out there, which goes something like this: the Christian walk, the spiritual life, following God, consists exclusively of a set of rational commitments. to a a set of propositions or positions. And those propositions and those positions need to be advanced in a world that's unbelieving and becoming increasingly more unbelieving and hostile to the faith and skeptical. Uh, And those positions need to be advanced and they need to be defended against all the hard questions that are raised, uh, especially raised in the universities by very intelligent people who have very hard questions. Okay, put very hard questions to Christians. And those of us who live and move and have our being in universities uh, or around university environments uh, and are surrounded by or have been surrounded by skeptical professors, openly critical professors, hostile professors who uh, have no qualms about attacking the faith uh, or maybe even attacking you personally, calling you names or berating you, or if not professors, uh, fellow students, fellow graduate students are agnostic or atheist or uh, of a more nat- of a naturalistic bent of mind, um, the hostilities that they will uh, raise and advance against against you tend to make us feel just from a natural point of view insecure, and uh, have a profound desire to basically uh, let's say obsess with reasons, arguments, principles distinctions, rebuttals, refutation. And so you might spend hours and hours, some of us at least, might spend hours and hours and hours obsessing about certain lines of reasoning, certain arguments, uh, finding the perfect refutation, finding the one argument that's really going to just destroy the opposition, all those kinds of things. Uh, Find the one statement that will really silence the the critics of Christ, the the enemies of the faith, however you want to describe it. Um, so on this view, then, there's a kind of reduction as well, where the Christian walk consists exclusively of this rational reflection upon the data of revelation or the givens of experience. Okay, so we have to think about truth, we have to think about virtue, we have to think about the soul, we have to think about free will, we have to think about creation, we have to think about evolution, we have to think about uh, a lot of things. Um and we have to think it through very carefully. We have to think it through deeply. And we have to consider the objections to the contrary. We have to, and we have to answer those objections and advance our positions with argumentation. Yeah. And if you think of the Christian walk in these terms exclusively, um, then a great deal of things that are carried out in the Catholic Church today will seem really kind of irrelevant. A lot of ministry that's out there will seem fundamentally irrelevant to you uh, or to life. So a lot of um, activities that are carried out that try to promote an affective, experiential, relational response to the Lord, that's going to seem irrelevant, a waste of time, uh, maybe even kind of stupid, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Um, And there can be a kind of rationalism in a a broad sense of the term, that sets in, that's really opposed to um, a life of devotion, pious exercises, uh, an affective experiential response to the Lord, a deep living relationship with him. It's either opposed to it or just neglects it, very seriously neglects it, okay? Okay. So this is what we could call the rationality, sort of, the absolutization of the rational. So these are two absolutizations. One is the absolutization of the relational against the rational. The other is the absolutization of the rational against the relational. And this dichotomy is out there, and it seems to me like it's tearing a lot of people apart. It tears people apart internally. It tears people apart between each other, okay? and. Um, Before I go any further, let me just ask, does this sound like a reasonable characterization of this dichotomy that's out there? A lot of people are shaking their heads. They know what I'm talking about. Whenever I talk about this, I get lots of people shaking their heads saying, yeah, this is like the issue. Okay, well, here's, here's the basic response to this. This dichotomy is just not Catholic. It's just not. Okay, the Catholic Church and Catholic Life and Catholic intelligence is characterized by um, overcoming false dichotomies and, and and reconciling things and finding the intrinsic harmony and order that's there. A Catholic thinking is always a both-and thinking where other movements tend to dichotomize, okay? So where you see this dichotomizing taking place, um, it's a sign that the Catholic spirit has been lost or undermined in some way okay And uh, what I want to propose to you this is that we're here this this weekend in this student leadership conference precisely in, our, in order to wake up to a particular calling, I guess you could say or a grace that is ours. the calling or the grace that is ours at this point in time, What's really needed very, very, very badly at this point in in the history of the church, especially in the United States, is people who realize, what we need are people who realize that the walk with the Lord, the Christian walk following him, really is an integration of the relational and the rational. A complete Catholic life involves both relationality and rationality, and the proper integration of all of these things the affective, the experiential, the relational, the rational, the analytical, the argumentative, the conceptual, the apologetic, all those sorts of things. All of it belongs together. All of it has its place in the life of the church. All of it has its place and should have its place in our lives. So, in previous generations, um, integration, I think, was able to happen a little bit more spontaneously. But I think we're in a situation now in the church where the integration of the relational side of the Christian walk and the the rational side of the Christian walk, that integration no longer happens spontaneously or naturally by virtue of just being in the church or participating in the life of the church. I think we've now reached a point given a number of circumstances, a vast host of circumstances, we've reached a point where integration needs to become a deliberate, intentional effort on our part. And we have to realize that the Lord has given us the grace and the call or the gift and the task. If you want to use JP2 kind of language, he's given us the gift, the grace, and the task of seeking and working out a deep integration of the relational and the rational, first in ourselves, in our own lives, and then hopefully helping other people uh, come along that path of integration as well. Okay? The church needs this very, very badly. And the Thomistic Institute is uniquely positioned, I think, to provide for the church in the United States and, 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 Throughout the world in, in a way, to provide this uh, path of integration, models of integration, and a life of it, okay? So that's, I think, why we're here, to sort of catch the vision. What's the vision? Integration is the vision, okay? The relational and the rational, no false dichotomies, we're Catholic, okay? We want our hearts to be in this game. We want our minds to be in this game, intellect, uh, illuminated with light. We want our heart, our will to be inflamed with love. And we want our focus to be on God, the living God. Okay? And all, if, we, if we get clear on those things, everything will kind of come along in its wake. Now, all that goes to show, goes back to our original question. If we know that the, if we know that the purpose of life is to know God, What's, how, how do you pursue that? How do you live that? How do you, you, how do you go after that purpose? Well, the false dichotomy is not going to get you anywhere, okay? What will get you where you want to go? St. Thomas talks about this when he talks about the contemplative life and the active life, okay? This is where he, he discusses these two things, these two lives, okay, among Christians, Okay, the the contemplative life and the active life. That's that's what we're going to talk about here for a few moments. And what I want to do this morning is just give you a kind of over uh, a bird's eye overview or introduction to the contemplative life and the active life, but specifically to focus on the contemplative life. Okay, because I think when you realize, wait a second, that's what I really want, (laughs) right? I really want to live what he calls the contemplative life, and that will be how I know God. But the contemplative life also includes certain other active components, so we'll talk about this. So let's talk about the contemplative life uh, and make a kind of introduction to it. What do we mean by the contemplative life? A lot of you, when you hear the term contemplative life, are going to immediately think of cloistered nuns and monks and people who live uh, in a certain fixed religious state that's devoted to contemplation or contemplative prayer, um, just got some news for you. That's, for St. Thomas, that's not the contemplative life. That's the contemplative state. Okay, the contemplative state is one thing. The contemplative life is another. I want to get that distinction right off the bat. This was a big realization. I learned this, okay, formation. Um, contemplative state is one thing. The contemplative life is another. And the contemplative state doesn't make any sense at all unless you know what the contemplative life is. Because the whole purpose of the contemplative state is to protect and promote contemplative life. So we'll talk about contemplative life, and then we'll come back and say a few things at the end about contemplative state, okay? What's the contemplative life? Well, let's break it down real simple. Let's talk about life. What do you mean by life, okay? When St. Thomas talks about these things, he basically says He's gonna. When we talk about someone's life, uh, we often what we have in mind is what the person is predominantly given to. Okay. So some people are really predominantly giving, given to, let's say, making music. And it would be very normal to say that life is music. Music is his life. Okay. And we all kind of know what is meant by that. The person has a passion for music. The person's kind of consumed by music. The issues around music are, are his issues or her issues. And a person is predominantly given to, to music, making music. Or Olympic athletes, right? We'll say their life is, well, pole vaulting or something like that. Their, their life is wrestling, okay? So they will make great sacrifices. They'll like go many other comforts and pleasures in life just in order to become the world's best pole vaulter, right? Or, or something like that. And we'll say pole vaulting is this person's life, okay? When we talk about the contemplative life and the active life, we're using life in that sense of the term,
0: okay?
1: And the contemplative life is basically a life in which someone is principally intent on truth, what the person wants most of all. Is truth. And the person is per- predominantly given to truth, to the life of seeking truth, inquiring into the truth, uh, going after the truth, considering the truth, raising questions, thinking things through, uh, reasoning about things. Okay? That's the contemplative life. Those who are intent principally or chiefly on truth are living a, a contemplative life, whether you're in a, a massive state or not, whether you're in a closer or not. Okay? That's contemplative life. Now, contemplative life is contrasted typically with the active life. What's the active life? The active life is a life in which people are predominantly given to procuring the necessities of life. Okay, someone's got to farm and, and, and make you know, and bringing the harvest and, and food and somebody has to run hospitals and somebody has to take care of health and someone has to run schools and someone has to build roads and someone has to fly airplanes. We need these things okay, in order for, to live, right? They're part of the necessity of life. And if you're given primarily to those things, that's the active life. okay? So anyone here who's a philosophy major and went home to your parents, uh, and first announced you wanted to become a philosophy major, you ran into the conflict between contemplative and active life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So your parents were probably living an active life, and they're principally intent on whatever it is you know, being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a pharmacist, being whatever, uh, selling insurance, whatever the case may be, procuring the necessities of life. You say, I want to get, become a philosophy major. The first response is going to be, what are you going to do with that? Okay. You say, well, that's that's a consideration proper to the act of life.
0: <laughs>
1: it is. It's a consideration proper to the act of life. I'm gonna be predominantly given the truth for its own Okay. That's that's uh contemplative life. All right. So There's a way in which once you realize this, you realize this contemplative life is actually something that takes place principally. It's an interior. Contemplative life is primarily an interior life. It's an activity of intellect, although the will is definitely involved. And you might, though, start to think it just consists of thinking, just thinking, thinking, thinking about truth, and that abstract analysis and conceptual considerations and and argumentation, and inquiry, and research, uh, and all that sort of th- those sorts of things we were talking about earlier. Well, if you were to do that, if you were to identify the contemplative life exclusively with the act of the intellect, now note the word "exclusively," you'd be set up for the dichotomy we're talking about. You'd be set up for that. Okay. So the contemplative life does not consist exclusively of acts of the intellect. It involves act of the intellect. Principally, okay, or properly per se, contemplation is an act of the intellect, but it also requires an act of the will. Note, we said, the person is intent on, on truth, on knowing the truth. Intention is an act of the will. So the will is involved in contemplative life. No, one's a contempt- no one lives the contemplative life by accident. You have to intend it. You have to go towards it freely and turn to it freely. So it's an act of, there's a a component of the will involved as well. And maybe some of you are already there. Maybe some of you have, have already kind of realized, look, there's just this life of inquiry into the truth, pursuit of the truth, research into the truth, beholding the truth, pondering the truth. That's just the way I am. And that's just how I want to live my life. If you've already made that kind of intention, you've really entered into the contemplative life more consciously, more deliberately, more more perfectly, I guess we could say, okay? But there's also something else that's involved in the contemplative life that St. Thomas is very clear about, and he gets this from Aristotle. Friendship is a critical component of the contemplative life. Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics, no one can be happy without friends, And that applies both to the people in the active life who are, you know, running courtrooms and businesses and things like that. But it also applies to uh, people who are living to pursue the truth. We pursue the truth together in a community. And Aristotle has a vision of of a contemplative kind of commune. And it's a commune. It's not just one guy thinking things through by himself. He's with his friends. And they do research together and they present their findings to each other. They give speeches to one another, Aristotle says. Okay? Um, So you can't live the contemplative life on your own without friends being part of it. St. Thomas says this in his very first article on the contemplative life. He says this The life of every man would seem to be that wherein he delights the most and on which he is most intent. The guy who lives for music, the guy who lives for you know, pole vault, okay? Uh, and the guy who lives for the truth, to know the truth, to find the truth. He says, but Aquinas adds this. He says, thus especially does he wish to associate with his friends. So he throws that in there. That's a quote from Aristotle. Associating with friends is part of the contemplative lie. We go, after, we go in search of the truth together. Now, there's two ways you might understand this association of friends with friends in the contemplative life. One is a kind of horizontal friendship where we're friends with each other and we're pursuing the truth together, and we have common interests, common aims, and we uh, love one another, and we're interested in what each other has to say because we're interested ultimately in finding the truth together. Okay? Uh, But there's another aspect of this friendship Aquinas clearly has in mind And that is, he has in mind the friendship, which which is charity itself. Charity for Aquinas is friendship with God. So the contemplative life is lived, at least for Christians it is, it is lived in this context of friendship with God. Friendship with God. So written right into the notion of contemplative life up front is the idea of the intellect being fixed on truth and the pursuit of truth, the will being intent on this very activity as one's predominant occupation, but also an understanding you're going to do this in the context of friendship, both horizontally with other friends in, in the world or you know side by side, but also vertically in a vertical friendship with God in the context of charity. Okay? So friends. Pursuing the truth together, together with God himself, who is the truth. That's the vision of the contemplative life that Aquinas has. Okay, Active life is going to be this life where people pursue various, um, the, the pro, they seek to procure the necessities of life, but Aquinas has a much more specific understanding of it. Aquinas thinks that those who live the active life are given predominantly to the moral virtues. They're given predominantly to works of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, okay? And all the associated virtues that are that belong to all of those, okay? Those are the things that people are given predominantly to if they're living the active life, okay? So... Um, we want to take all this into consideration, and we want you to have this first kind of general view um, of, of contemplative life and active life. So contemplative life is principally this interior life where the, the intellect is occupied with truth, looking into it, finding it, beholding it, okay? but doing so intentionally as a free, intentional activity, so it's a matter of will as well, but doing so together with friends in a community that includes God himself okay, as the chief friend and the object of our pursuit. All right, if that's what the contemplative life is, what does the perfection of the contemplative life consist of? I mean, when, when have you really lived it to the full? When is it really, um, like, really done, yeah, maximally? And you might think you have lived the contemplative life to the full, when you have finally and at last figured everything out, or you have an answer to all of your questions, you have found the, the perfect argument to you know to to beat the bad guys, or you have found the best explanation for this, or you found the perfect resolution for a particular problem that has been b- bothering you, or a particular question that's been disturbing your mind. Problem of free will, problem of evil, something like that. Ah, I found the perfect distinction that solves the problem, uh, something like that. Uh, those are good things for sure, and we'll get into more details about that. But Aquinas is very clear that the the perp- the perfection of the contemplative life is not simply in the knowing itself. He says very clearly in his questions on the contemplative life, the perfection of the contemplative life consists in this, not only that the truth may be known, but that it also may be loved. So the perfection of the contemplative life consists not only in the act of the intellect, knowing the truth, but in the act of the will, loving the truth. Okay, That's an essential component of the perfection of the contemplative life. So you can see how Catholic Aquinas is When he talks about this, it's not a a life of rational cerebral analysis over here versus a life of relationality, affectivity, and experience over here. That's a false dichotomy. The Catholic way to understand this is that we're given, in the contemplative life, one is given predominantly to the pursuit of truth. There's an activity of the intellect, that's the principal activity that's going on, inquiry, the the research, the investigation, all those sorts of things. And we'll get into much more detail about that in in a moment. But this is a voluntary act that's undertaken out of love, and it's undertaken for love. It's undertaken out of love, and it's undertaken for love. No one will go in pursuit of the truth unless you really love it. Okay? And if you've really found the truth when you not only understand it, get it, but you love it. And you enjoy the truth just because it's the truth. Okay? It's, the, it's like we were made to drink from this fountain of light on high. and Oh, but to drink from that fountain of light would be beatitude itself. It would be joy, happiness, life to the full, that drinking from the fountain of light, that's an act of the intellect, no doubt about it. But it's not an act of the intellect without love, without affection, without joy, without rejoicing. Okay? Um, It's to know, to love, and to enjoy God. Okay? All right, so... I just want to make those points that this is, the, this is the vision. I just want you to sort of catch the vision of the contemplative life here, okay? Now, that's the essence of the contemplative life. That's also the perfection of the contemplative life. Um, now, we need to talk about various, um, we could say, uh, well, let me, let me ask, uh, well, we need to talk about the relation between the active life and the contemplative life. Because here's another mistake you might make. You might say, "What I want to do is live the contemplative life, and that's it. That's all I want to do." Okay. Uh, and the active life, not, I don't want any. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want any part. Okay. Believe me, that's a temptation uh, that people can experience. St. Thomas actually talks about this to no small extent in various places, uh, and and it's not really possible for someone here on earth to uh, live the contemplative life so totally that um, there's no active moment within it, okay? At the very least, you need to get out of bed and uh, you know bathe yourself and feed yourself a little bit uh, so that you can go study, okay? Um, so there's going to be a moment of active life, involved, but it's, if you're not careful, you can also run into a dichotomy here. I think, well, the active life is basically just Something that just gets in the way okay, of these contemplative pursuits of mine. That's not how Aquinas thinks of it. He thinks that the active life predisposes a person and outfits a person for contemplative life or to live contemplative life in a better and more excellent way. How so? Remember, for him, the active life consists of these pursuit of the virtues, right? There's the pursuit of uh, it's through temperance and fortitude and justice. Okay? So getting your relationship right with food and drink and sex and getting your relationship right with all those causes of fear in your life and getting your relationship right with all the other people and the debts that we owe to other people, the things we owe other people in justice on a daily basis. If we're not squared away when it comes to those things, if, if our souls and our bodies are not in good order when it comes to food and drink and sex and fears and the obligations or things like oh, other people out of justice, if we're not squared away on those things, we're going to have a lot of inner turmoil. We're going to have a lot of restlessness in our hearts. We're going to have our imaginations will be flittering around. we irrational fears. will be following up all the time, impulses to go satisfy the desires of the flesh will be for brewing all the time or boiling within us. No, in order to live the contemplative life, we need a good measure of inner freedom. We need a really good measure of inner freedom. We need inner freedom from disordered relationship with food, alcohol, sex, ah. Uh, sex and, you know, me time and other such things that take us away from obligations that we have towards other people and various duties of our state, to use the old-fashioned language. Okay. If we aren't squared away or don't have that measure of inner freedom, you're not really going to be a good contemplative Aquinas thinks. And when he thinks that, he's actually following a very ancient tradition. It goes back to the Desert Fathers. It's in the Desert Fathers, it's in it's in Keshen. It's also in Augustine as well. The idea being that first you need to really live the active life for some time. That is, you need to devote yourself to the works of the virtues, temperance, fortitude, justice, and all the little associated virtues that go with those things. You need to to work on those, we can say, for a good while. And that will uh, order your soul gradually, slowly, over the course of years, and will uh, will bring about a measure of inner freedom. And the more that that inner freedom comes about, the more the person can really turn to contemplative life, okay? So a lot of those things in your life that you think might be getting in the way of studies, contemplation, uh, and a life of the pursuit of truth um, are actually occasions for you to become a more contemplative person as time goes on, okay? If you deal with the issues in your life that um, fall under matters of temperance and and courage and justice and prudence, okay? So the vision that Aquinas has that he gets from the Desert Fathers is that a person lives the active life for a good period of time. Their passions are gradually calmed, ordered, harmony is introduced into the soul, and then the eye of the soul, the intellect, becomes increasingly more free, unpreoccupied, with lesser things and becomes increasingly more capable of simply gazing upon God with delight. And that's the definition of contemplation. What is contemplation? Here comes the definition of contemplation. For St. Thomas, contemplation is gazing upon the truth with delight. Gazing upon truth with delight and to reach a sin, Christ, very content. Note the addition of the word, of the expression, with delight. It's meant to be a happy thing, a joyful thing, a good thing. And there can be many reasons why it's delightful. We can analyze all that endlessly, okay? But that's that's contemplation, okay? So now we've got another distinction. We've got contemplative state versus contemplative life. And we've got the contemplative life versus contemplation itself. So, contemplation itself is an act of the intellect, it's the eye of the soul gazing, looking, beholding. Do you ever have a moment in your life when you could just sit and you're kind of free for the moment? And you just watch a beautiful sunset. And sort of saw the sun, sort of light up the sky, the evening sky with many amazing colors, right? Just sit on a hillside and watch the sunset. You don't try to figure it out. You don't try to analyze it. You don't try to understand it or explain why it's happening. You just take it in and delight. You'd be having a contemplative moment, we might say, okay? A moment when the intellect was gazing Upon the truth, the truth is sunset with delight. Okay? Um, One of my old professors used to talk about cats and call them contemplative animals. Okay? In in a sense, right? Do you ever see a cat sitting on top of a
0: refrigerator in a kitchen,
1: just sitting there, surveying the whole, totally still, surveying the kitchen, taking it all in, occasionally blinking? Okay? What's he doing? He's contemplating okay he's contemplating what's being taken okay so contemplation for Aquinas is definitely a simple act of the mind it's a simple looking a simple beholding a simple gaze when people are in love with each other they contemplate each other that's basically one of the principal things they do they just look at one another they could sit there and just look at each other for hours, and hours, and hours, and just enjoy each other. There's, that's contemplative, okay? Now, take that and transfer it to God, right? To truth in general, and to God in particular and principally, and you, have, you start to get the idea of what contemplative life is. Contemplative life is gazing upon beloved first truth use a, an expression of Saint Catherine of Siena, right gazing upon a beloved first truth and just an, enjoying okay what what you what you can see all right that's contem- that's contemplation itself Now there's many other things to say here uh, but but I'll, I'll I'll make this one point. I'm sure I hope most of you are familiar with the three acts of the mind there's simple apprehension judgment, and reason. So simple apprehension is when you take something in and you just get it. Like when someone tells a joke and you just get the point and you laugh, that's a simple apprehension. okay? Uh, or like when someone teaches was teaching you at some point in your life, somebody said, you know, A equals B. This was used in, in math lesson and you learn, okay, I know what equals means. Who explained to you what equality is? I don't know. Nobody. You just got it. It's just simple apprehension. If you didn't get it, you never would have made it through matter. Okay, you had to get it in a certain point. A simple apprehension. Now, if human beings were angels, we could just live this contemplative life where we simply gaze and we simply get things, and that would, our, that would be our cognitive life. That's how the angels live. We're not angels, we have something in common with them, we can contemplate and, and have a simple apprehension of, of things, but. We can also we also need to raise questions, make judgments, answer the questions, draw distinctions, develop arguments, reason things through. Okay, so that's judgment and reasoning. That's part of our cognitive life, and that's part of contemplative life for human beings. Okay. However, For Aquinas, these three acts of the mind, apprehension, judgment, and reasoning, are not just three sort of juxtaposed activities that we carry out. It's like, hey, here's a nice Thomistic list of things. There's apprehension, judgment, and reason. Cool, here you go, memorize this. No, Aquinas understands there's a deep internal order between these three acts of the mind. You You should think of it really as a cycle. Okay. So the cycle begins with apprehension, or contemplation, just gazing noticing something taking it in but then it proceeds to raising questions thinking things through drawing judgment making judgments drawing distinctions then that proceeds to reasoning inference you know various kinds inductive arguments deductive arguments arguments for the best explanation probabilistic arguments arguments for this arguments for the opposite all that and then there comes a resolution or a discovery that leads you back to an aha, oh, I get it. Now you're back to contemplation. You've taken something in, you've learned something through the process of questioning, judging, reasoning, etc. So there's this cycle, contemplation or simple apprehension, judgment, reasoning that leads back to the discovery and the contemplation of a new truth that then leads to new movements through the cycle. And that's what contemplative life is for human beings. It's this moving through the cycle of apprehension, judgment, and reasoning over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again, okay? Um, we want you to have that because later on in another talk, I'm going to break this down even more. Okay, this, this cycle includes all kinds of what we call them sub-activities, right? There's going to be reading. There's going to be listening to lectures. There's going to be meditation. There's going to be cogitation. There's going to be prayer. Uh, and all these things are going to be part of. There's going to be study. And there's also curiositas, which is a special vice to watch out for. And all these things that are related. We'll get into that in, in, in my next talk on sacred study. okay? But I just want you to have these this, this vision of the contemplative life okay? Um, among human beings. Now, I'll just close with one remark about the contemplative state. I said I would come back to this question. Okay. When people hear contemplative life, they often think, first of all, of the cloistered nuns or monks or people living in a, a form of life where yeah, their life is given over to prayer. Now, notice I haven't used the word prayer yet. Okay. Contemplation, there's there's different kinds of contemplation. There's philosophical contemplation. There's theological contemplation. There's a contemplation that flows from the Spirit's gift of wisdom. Okay, there's, or what the catechism calls contemplative prayer. Okay, Aquinas has all those those notions, okay, uh, but it's all just comprised. Those are more specific things that fall under this very general heading contemplative, contemplative life. And I want you. We, we go from the general to the specific, so we'll get into some of those other things later. But I just want to close with this thought: once you understand what contemplative life is, because okay, this life of where you're given, your heart is given predominantly to looking for God, to knowing God, to to loving God, to enjoying God, and truth in general, but God principally. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, You might think to yourself, this is like just the best life, and this is the best way to respond to, to to the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his gift of the spirit, the reality of the church. And and the the life that's been set before us, like this is, of course, does this is a no brainer. The active life, yeah, okay, fine, you need that uh, to some extent. But uh, and yeah, most people might be given to that. But as for me, I really feel like this contemplative form of life, this contemplative life, contemplative way of life, we should say, is really like my my proclivity, the the tendency of my heart, it's my inclination, it's my deepest inclination, or, yeah, this is what life is about. Um, That's a real contemplative soul, okay? Um, And if that's the way you are, and if that's what you're thinking, you might seriously consider entering the contemplative state The contemplative state is an external form of life that's designed with great wisdom down through the ages and recognized by the church. It's a form of life that's designed to protect contemplative life and promote contemplative life in a soul. It's a special kind of habitat or a special milieu where contemplative life can be lived to the full Contemplative life can be lived in the active state. It can be, but it faces many challenges, many difficulties. The contemplative state establishes a great measure of external freedom so that the person can give himself or herself to contemplative life. Okay? So, um, once you understand this, oh my gosh, there's this this way of life, the contemplative life, and yeah, that's where I want to live, but there's also this contemplative state that's designed, literally designed, to protect and promote and foster and cultivate the contemplative life. Uh, yeah, you might start to think, wait a second, maybe that would be a good match for my soul. Okay. Um, so in the meantime, though, how shall we understand the Thomistic Institute and what we're up to? I think we need to just kind of communally acknowledge here as a way to begin our student leadership conference. We want to give ourselves intentionally and even predominantly the truth, looking for truth, seeking the truth, trying to behold the truth, love the truth and enjoy the truth and do it together with God in Christ Jesus and with one another in the church. And if we do that, if we give ourselves to the contemplative life, as I've kind of outlined it here, well, that will be the integration. That will be the integration that the church on earth at this point in time really needs people to start to, to be formed in, okay? And then you can start to introduce other people to it and say, no, 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 not this false dichotomy, relational, rational, that's just nonsense, Okay? Christian life has all the elements, and even the contemplative life has it all, okay? All right, we'll leave it at that. Thank you.
0: Why don't we go ahead and start with that? There may be a microphone we can use for that, but let's just get started. Well, James, just call on your own.
1: I think you were first. Go ahead.
2: Uh, yeah, Please Peter. Uh, it's Peter from St. Vincent College, and uh, I really want to go back a little bit to the dichotomy we'll of that first and a sort of pastoral turn. Uh, the thing that I've observed on our campus, on campus ministries, especially, is that there's a kind of a twofold problem pertaining to that dichotomy. Is there's a there's a sort of deficiency, and there's a sort of preoccupation. There's a preoccupation in in a lot of young students today, that um, there, there's a preoccupation in a lot of young students today, especially freshmen, that I observe that they have that sort of preoccupation that religious prayer, liturgy enough, not not really liturgy, but yep. religious and prayer, yep. it's personal. Yep, it's something personal. And on the other hand. There's a defi- deficiency in in their intellectual formation. I would dare say that because I was talking to, because I want to be a theology professor in the future, I yep. talked to people about it, talked to my theology professor about it, and they told me it's like teaching a high school, middle school class. We dropped a lot of advanced theology yep. courses yep. on campus. not because of administration, but because people are just not ready when they're junior or senior to take that class, let's say Christology, Vatican II, they're all sort of being marginalized in a way that's, so there's that twofold problem, the preoccupation of religious being a personal thing and the deficiency in intellectual formation and so took that pastoral turn. I just wanna ask what do you think is the best way to get people started and there's a the problem with conversion because they have the first 18 year of their life in a sort of false formation and we need to change that but where to start or put into another term is that how how should we foster in their world the appetite
1: for God? That's a great question, um, common question. It leads, to the, it leads to the question I suppose of how do we, you know, how do you trigger initial conversions and those kinds of things? That's a very specific question. And there's a lot of work on that specific question. And a lot of what drives the pastoral ministry as it's as it's carried out out there now today is precisely an attempt to, sort of, I guess you could say, appeal to those very early stages of conversion where there often is um, something more, there's an awakening going on an affective response and something experiential. But we also face a huge, Problem, which is that we have tons and tons and tons of Catholics who are, uh, how shall I put it, their highest level of faith formation or intellectual formation in the faith is like eighth grade, while at the same time they have like master's degrees or doctorates in like chemistry, physics, law. So they have a professional knowledge and competence that vastly outstrips their um, their understanding of the faith. And one of the principal services we can perform for people, I think, is to try to close that gap a little, a little bit. Um, I think in, whenever you ask a question like, "Well, how do we do this?" or "How do you you might be requesting it like a technique, like give me a technique, give me a step by step process I can carry out to to solve this particular issue," I think the answer really is, "Let's just be ourselves." As the Thomistic Institute. Let's just be people who are friends together, living this pursuit of the truth together with Christ and a friendship with him. And um, the fruits of that, just by itself, it will be attractive and it will draw people. And you can start to propose to people, you know, there's actually answers to these questions. And getting answers to your questions can actually help you grow closer to Jesus that comes as a surprise to a lot of people that's why I'm gonna have, the second talk is going to be on sacred study people don't think of study as like a sacred exercise a spiritual activity one can carry out like the stations of the cross like Eucharistic adoration they don't put these things on the same part Like no, there's like these spiritual activities over here like stations of the cross rosary Eucharistic adoration prayer then there's study lots well, of you do for like cool like and, and you're getting you sort of learn this naturalistic view of the world no the genius of the fathers of the church and saint thomas is that they were able to see no study there is a way to study that sanctifies there's a way to study that produces sanctification of the soul it divinizes it it unites the soul to god more and more so we'll get into that we so we have to first get clear ourselves just got to get the idea there is such a thing as sacred study. There's a study that sanctifies. Let's talk about that first, and let's get clear on that. Then we can propose it.
2: Um, given that you said friendship is like a requisite for the contemplative life. So it's a
1: necessary condition, yeah.
2: Right. I was wondering what the stance is on the early church fathers, many of whom would spend long, like many years out in the desert, like uh, you know, like hermits. Yeah. Uh, particularly common now in Eastern Catholic churches.
1: Yeah, sure. Good question. If you read the, and study them, they all say that no one should pursue the eremitical life until you've lived together with other people in the monastery for a long time. Anyone that just sort of gets up and goes and moves into a cave by himself, he's sure to fall into illusion. So you really need a formation in cenobitic life, they call it, the life together in community uh, so that you can grow in the virtues, gain that inner freedom, grow in the, the ways and means of contemplation, which we'll get into in the next talk when we talk about sacred study, grow in those things. And then once you have reached a certain level, it might... For some people, it makes sense to go aramidical. and even then we got to draw a qualification. So um, uh, aramidical life is, um, yeah, it's generally understood as to be more exceptional. Yeah. And by the way, the hermits have friends too. <laughs> fact their biggest problem is they can't get people to stop knocking on the door okay I
0: just want to talk more about um, this kind of has to do with the eastern Catholics oh yeah sure how do you how do you think uh, St. Thomas's conception of the the, uh, the contemplative life uh, how do you think that compares to the like hesychasm and uh And Eastern Orthodoxy, like Eastern Catholic sometimes, you know, trying to feel God's uncreated life,
1: as they say. Okay, great question. Um, Eastern, the Eastern side of the church is one thing. Eastern contemplative life is another thing. And hesychasm is another thing. So you you may not realize this, but you put, there are a lot of things going on there together. So the Eastern side of the church, Aquinas is very well familiar with. He read a lot of the Eastern Fathers. Uh, uses them a lot. And his treatise on the contemplative life really is a synthesis of Western fathers and Eastern fathers. It, it's really incredible what he pulls off, when you know it, the sources in the background and all that stuff. Um, and I have personally spent a fair amount of time studying the Eastern stuff. Cashin, I guess in a way, it could be called Eastern, even though he's a big influence in the West. But uh, you look at Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus the Confessor, etc. You look at those, I have yet to find anything in them that Aquinas can't account for on his understanding of the contemplative life. You can talk about experiential knowledge, rays of light. I mean, Aquinas has, has it. And okay, now he's got, there are definite theological differences, in the way, especially in the way he understands the, the relation of nature and grace. Okay, But if you can sort of get clear on that, okay, Aquinas understands nature and grace this way. They don't understand nature and grace quite that way because they didn't square off with Pelagius the way the Western church did. Um, Then, but then don't absolutize that. I would say, okay, now is there a way we can read these in in a kind of harmony? And you can. So this whole thing like contemplative life is the highest form of life. I mean, that's both an Eastern and a Western position, right? Mary has chosen the better part. And... Uh, There's many other specific things we could say. Now, when you raise the question of hesychasm, many things around that, that's a specific development within um, Eastern Christian monasticism since the late Middle Ages, okay? where And there's a specific historical context that was developed against, but it tends to emphasize, highly emphasize, a specific... um, mode, we could call it, of prayer, where uh, the prayer becomes, it's monologistic, you, you say the Jesus prayer repeatedly, almost exclusively as your form of prayer life, besides the liturgy, and that's meant to lead you to a specific place where you enter into imageless and conceptualist or wordless prayer, and then you have some experience of the uncreated energies of God, okay? Okay. Um, that that's a much that's something that comes after Aquinas, and I would want to say that we'd have to get in, we'd have to really dig into the weeds into controversies about wordless prayer, imageless prayer, um in order to really kind of get into that. but i'll all I'll say is you ask a question that's much bigger than you than you think maybe, maybe realize I have a question also
0: on the friendship topic, sure. Uh, in your experience, what do you think is some of the ways that you and your friends have sort of ground together in contemplation,
1: like anything y'all do in specific, that has We read books together and talk about them. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, and we and we, t- we find out, talk about who's reading what, about whom, and then we also raise questions um, and just talk things to you. I think, we'll have, you know, I think you'll get an answer to that question just by participating in this conference over the next four days. It's going to be just several days of people like-minded people who are raising big questions, uh, talking about them together, talking about books they've read, and you'll walk away from this time together with like hopefully a dozen things you need to go read and and, and think through. Okay, and that just happens organically or spontaneously. Again, I'd watch out for maybe searching out a technique. You just participate in the in the community of of inquirers, and you'll and it will happen naturally and supernaturally. Do you want to pick on some people? Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um,
0: so uh, as you noted and there are a lot of uh, barriers to people in the act of life trying to enter into contemplation. So I was wondering if you have any uh, suggestions as uh, for people living primarily the act of life and how we can disclose
1: we're gonna have lots of suggestions about that. That's what's coming in later talks. Yeah we're gonna have a whole talks answering that question
0: has it back in. Oh,
1: okay. uh-huh. so Aquinas talks about how the emotions actually make us more intelligent um uh, raise to a greater comprehension of God. Um, in certain instances, but um, as some people have experienced in the church, there can be an overemphasis of like emotionality yeah. know,
0: like, in in the relationality. Yeah. Um, kind of, you can see this
1: in like liturgy or just like music blaring yeah. yeah. or like you know, oh, or just like it. you have to cry <laughs> on a retreat for it to be a good retreat yeah. Yeah. or something <laughs> like that. Um, so, kind of, what would you say uh, would be a primary Kind of solution or argument to this uh, instance in the church
2: um, to kind of say you don't need the emotions, particularly to like have a
0: relationship?
1: That's a good question. I think the simple response is that experience is subjective. Different people are going to have different experiences, they just will, and there's no stopping it. It's the, the nature will just run its course this way. Some people will have very Emotional experiences—they will, they will, they will cry. They will be overwhelmed, and like God will give graces to some people that blows them away. Okay, um, you know Pascal recently—you know—he's been in. There's been discussions about Pascal. He had a massive religious experience—the the night of fire, right—that that really converted him and transformed him. And Augustine's Confessions is full of religious experiences. And Saint Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trufo—you know—the way he comes to the faith is he. He meets this stranger who starts to tell him about, he he goes searching through these philosophical schools. He meets this stranger who starts to tell him about the prophets and the friends of God and Christ in his heart. He says his heart caught on fire when he was listening to the the discussion of the friends of God and the prophets. So people are going to have their experience, and they will be what they will be, and they will be variable. Some people will have these very emotional sorts of experiences. Some people will have very, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, heightened mo- moments of heightened consciousness or awareness of God or the presence of God or things like that. Um, some people will not have any of that and their inner life will be very dry and concept you know very dry. Uh, you might say conceptual, mostly conceptual or something like that. Um, that's particularly the case with people that suffer from certain psychological disorders, people who have uh, dep- who have depression, for example. They will not have the kind of emotive or affective responsive, you know, emotive responsiveness that others will have. And, and we got to be very careful about saying, you know, if that's the way your inner life is going, you're just not going to be as close to God or you're not going to be in union. That's just false. So experience is going to run its course and um, it's going to run its course by nature. It's going to run its course by grace. It's going to be variable. It's going to be particular. It's going to be subjective. Um, and that's okay. And we're not trying to either cultivate one specific type of experience or squash out any one type of experience. Uh, we want to sort of um, give ourselves to the pursuit of truth. And yeah, God will give the, the, um, the love and the affectivity that uh, the person needs to know the truth in the manner that's suitable for that soul under the designs of God that soul does that make sense i was kind of thinking more on the lines of like you need like like emotional music or like you need like emotional yep. things in order to like bring you to god that, like, yeah, you, you don't need that necessarily mm-hmm. yeah you don't a person doesn't necessarily need that yeah for sure um, but i think people do find god in those contexts as well and there's different kinds of emotional so there's praise and worship kind of emotional, but you can, I mean, you can break down during Gregorian chant. You can be moved to the core emotionally during a, a high liturgy, you know. Thank you for your talk. Um, So this could have just been, uh, I misheard something or misunderstood,
0: but I think at one point you said relationality and rationality, the integration is not spontaneous anymore. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that. Do you think there was a time previously where it was more spontaneous and what change would be there? I
1: think once upon a time, uh, the the mode of Catholic education and and pastoral and and sacramental life in the church was in a different sort of MO. And also, you're raising a bigger question. Um, It has to do with how you think things are actually developing in our culture and in our society. And some people are of the impression or of the view that as we go forward in time, things that in previous generations were worked out kind of naturally um, become increasingly more subject of choice given the technology that we have and given. So once upon a time, you know, um, if you were born to, in a rural family, to a farmer, basically you'd become a farmer. Nature would just kind of set the course for you in that direction. but. Once you introduce all kinds of educational opportunities into people's lives and start to have the vision of a okay, universal education and, all. okay, well, now whether you're going to, con- even if you're born into a family of farmers, maybe many generations of farmers, whether you're going to be a farmer is now a matter of choice. Who you are going to marry? You know, once upon a time, married, you know. The way that marriage was pursued and undertaken, and dating took place, and courtship took place—you know—it took place in one mode, and it's now taking place in a very different mode. Um, so, I think something very similar. Once upon a time, if a person was born and raised in the Catholic Church, you went through Catholic schools, uh, participated in the sacramental life of the church, uh, did some—you know lived the devotional life of the church. You have a devotion to the Sacred Heart over here. You have both, you know, Baltimore Catechism over here, you'd have both. That's just that's simple. And now, um, those things have been set aside, and we have a lot of strategies, pastoral strategies and methods that are being used that, let's say, really heavily emphasize the experiential, the affect. There was a deliberate choice in the 70s to set aside propositional catechesis. I mean, there really was. Uh, there was a deliberate choice to set aside natural theology as a as a kind of part of the normal part of the curriculum in Catholic schools Um, so uh, we need to make a deliberate intentional effort to bring together what in previous generations was just sort of given and was well formed externally and a person could be could could get the integration by going through the going through the the, uh, uniform sort of program of formation across the board there's one catechism in use in all Catholic schools in the United States. Everyone read the same catechism. Same questions, same answers. That's just not the case anymore. Wow, you more of... What kind of catechesis do you want? You want something that's a little bit more personalistic? You want something that's a little bit more scholastic? Do You want something... So it's like McDonald's. What kind of catechesis do you want? Maybe <laughs> hey, one,
0: one or two more questions
1: Oh, James took to you. Um, Maybe this is in connection to the topic of in the future, but so you said the perfection of the contemplative life um, is knowing the truth and loving the truth. Not only that the truth may be known, but that it may be loved as well. Yes. So, um, and then if the purpose of life is to know God, um, if someone's living in an active state, would the... Kind of perfection of their life to be also in a contemplative living in contemplative life to the full, or is there kind of perfection in the act of the active life? That well, also well, let's put it this way: in heaven, everyone will be contemplative. Heaven is contemplative life. Okay, so if if the, by perfection you mean that, yeah, and a person can, thanks be to God, praise God, they can get to heaven through the active life, Uh through the active state. Um, so the perfection, all things considered ultimately and in the long run, is um, is this contemplative life in heaven. The joy of the contemplative life here below is you get to have something of a foretaste of heaven here below. Does that make sense? There's, there's, more, to, there's more to it, but yeah.
0: Well, James, I think we better stop there. Let's give him a round of applause.